I swear, I had my pack on this time. It was on this time. I promise, I promise. Well, good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. My name is Jeremy. I'm the family minister here. If we have not met, it is so good that you are joining us this morning, uh, whether here in person or online. Happy Father's Day to all fathers, grandfathers, uncles, father figures, all them. This morning, uh, if you couldn't tell, this morning's text, not necessarily your expected Father's Day text here, uh, a more somber tone this morning. But before we get to that, uh, I just want to say, and this, I'm, I'm going to make this statement, and some of you may look at me and go, well, yeah, duh. Our Bible is beautiful. It is beautiful. And a, a collection of 66 different books, different genres, different authors, beautifully connected through God, through the inspired inspiration of God. And there is so much to love and appreciate about the Holy Scriptures. Beyond the obvious of it being God-breathed, God-inspired book, what makes the Bible so special is that it speaks to the human experience. It speaks to the heart of the human experience. You know, for example, uh, the, the Bible, the, the our often thought about heroes of the Bible are deeply flawed, broken people. We, we often don't really want to emulate them. I think of Moses, right? Moses, this great hero, the, the one who guides Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, struggled with a speech impediment. And, and in front of God, in front of the burning bush, says, uh, send, send, my, send my brother, he's better than me. Deeply flawed. I think in the New Testament, maybe the most, one of the most flawed people in the New Testament is Peter. I like to beat up on Peter a little bit because Peter is, well, he's Peter. He does a lot of very silly, dumb things. God, or Jesus, just ridicules, calls him Satan at one point. He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter, this deeply flawed individual, and we see all the warts in the Bible with these people. So there's these character flaws, and I think that's part of what makes the Bible so beautiful, is it doesn't hide the fact that these great heroes of the faith were not perfect. But I think what makes the Bible even more beautiful is that there is an emotional roller coaster you can find in the Bible. The spectrum of emotions are all there in the Bible. Love, exuberance, trouble, pain, loss, it's all in this book. And this morning's psalm is just one example of Scripture truly speaking to the human experience. What we're looking at this morning, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, is a psalm of lament. They are often also sometimes known as psalms of complaint, psalms of petition, or psalms of prayer. These psalms are often written in a place of distress as the author is crying out to God for something. I, I think I tend to prefer 
the, the sunnier psalms, the happier psalms. I don't know about you. Maybe you are someone that goes and you want to find these psalms of lament because you just love them. I prefer the happier ones, the enter his gates with thanksgiving. I, I like those psalms, the psalms that make you happy, the joyful, when everything's great. When, the ones where everything is sunshine and rainbows, we go to those psalms and we love those psalms. Psalm 23, we love that psalm. However, the beauty of the Psalms is that they cover the spectrum of the human emotions. And we all, at some point in our lives, resonate with the words of lament. We will find ourselves in moments in our lives where these words resonate with us deeply. Now, before we dive into these two Psalms, I want to do some setting up for us. I want to kind of talk a little bit about the, the nature of this psalm, the authorship, that sort of thing, because I think it will help us frame where we're going this morning. So if you've noticed, Psalm 42 and 43 are very connected, almost as if they are one psalm. And this is sort of the point where I think our modern verse and chapter number designation can actually be a little unhelpful at times, Because there's this break in between Psalm 42 and 43, but if we read it, you go, wait a minute, 43 seems like just a continuation of it. Now, don't mishear me. I love the chapters and verse numbers. They are man-made, though, and I think sometimes they can be a little unhelpful. This is a case where it's a little unhelpful, a little unclear, because if you've noticed, most Psalms start with a little header, a little... Uh, explaining what it is, right? A psalm of David or to the choir master. And if you look in your Bible, Psalm 42 has that, but Psalm 43 does not. And so, they really are one psalm, or at least a part one and a part two of the same psalm, written by the same author, and the, the message connects the same. I'm inclined to call this just one whole psalm, Um, That's where I would land, is that this is one larger psalm, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. Um, You don't have to say that if you don't want. Um, So let's talk about the authorship really quick. So the heading we read says, To the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah. Now a maskal, it's a musical term. Uh, we actually don't really know what that means. Um, scholars don't know what that means. And so this term maskal is actually just the Hebrew word. It's what the Hebrew word would sound like. It's called a transliteration when you just take that word and you make it into English. Um, and, and so we actually, we just know it's some sort of musical or liturgical term that they used um, back in the, the time of the Psalms being written. And we read that it is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, they, get, they were a group of priests, uh, the sons of Korah, a group of priests who oversaw the singing ministry uh, in the temple. That was sort of their job. And they, they got their name from uh, Korah, guy who rebelled against Moses, uh, is destroyed for rebelling against Moses in Numbers, but we read that the sons of Korah were not destroyed. And so they get their name from them, the sons of Korah, a singing group of priests who oversaw that ministry. Uh, and in Second Chronicles 2019, you can actually see uh, that ministry in action. Um, it gets referenced there in Second 
Chronicles. Now, there is scholarly debate over who wrote this. Uh, you would think, great, it was the sons of Korah. Um, but some actually believe that this is a psalm written by David given to the sons of Korah uh, to sing in congregational singing. Now, the only reason I bring this up is because this is almost split 50-50 is sort of the debate of, of who wrote this. Is it the sons of Korah that wrote this or did David? What's interesting to note is that most scholars who lean on David believe that it comes from a traumatic moment in David's life when his own son, Absalom, rebels against him for the throne and David is sent out of Jerusalem and is running for his life. Happy Father's Day here. Now, I, I think that the authorship is ultimately not overly important, whether it was the sons of Korah who wrote it or David who wrote it for the sons of Korah. But here is what we know as we look at this. The author has experienced spiritual sorrow in their life, and they are expressing this pain, this spiritual sorrow to God through song or through poetry. Now, I want to be careful today to not call what we are talking about depression. We, we can often run to that and go, the, the author is depressed. I, I don't want to use that term today. I want to use the term spiritual sorrow because many, if not most of us, will or have experienced a moment of sorrow, of spiritual emptiness, of feeling like God is not around or he's not listening. But not all of us will struggle with what we would consider depression. Spiritual sorrow can lead us to a place of depression, but it's not the same as a sort of clinical depression. So I don't want to use that term because I think it's different than what we're talking about in here. So as we read this psalm this morning and as we study it, ultimately the question I want to ask and that I, I'm hoping to answer this morning is this, is what do we do when we find ourselves in a season of spiritual darkness? How do we respond to spiritual sorrow in our lives? Regardless of if it comes from a circumstance in our life, whether it's a personal issue or, or some external issue, there is a way we can respond to God and to ourselves that we will see here in this psalm. So let's begin. We're going to take it stanza by stanza this morning. So let's begin and read the first five verses again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The author begins with this picture of thirst, uh, of being thirsty, the, the deer panting for water by the stream. 
this physical thirst for water of the deer is compared to his spiritual thirst for God. He is thirsty for God's presence. And just like how when we are thirsty, it's because our bodies need one of the most precious and life-sustaining resources, so too do our souls need the continual refreshing and rejuvenation that comes from God's presence. So how do we respond to spiritual sorrow? The first way is by refreshing our souls with the presence of God. We refresh our souls with the presence of God. Oftentimes, our our spiritual seasons, our seasons of spiritual sorrow are caused or at least exacerbated by a lack of nourishment from the living water. We, we may be near the stream. We may, be, we may think we are drinking deeply of the presence of God, but we are just sitting at the fountain. We are not drinking. Our mouths may be open, but we're not allowing that to go in. We're like sitting at the fountain and just letting the water drip out of our mouths. We do not drink deeply of God's goodness and presence. It reminds me, uh, again, of my son. I don't know why every time I come up here I have some illustration of my son. I think it's just the season of life I'm in, uh, but he, he is great for sermon illustrations right now. Uh, the toddler age is perfect for it. It's wonderful, but I digress. So uh, my wife and I have been coaching uh, our son's t-ball team this year for the last two months, uh, and it has been, it's been a blast. Uh, some would call it a blast. It's also been exhausting. Uh, having a bunch of toddlers, trying to teach them baseball, having them running around like crazy. Um, I did not realize how how fascinating dirt would become on the baseball field. Um, I I think I I tell them to stop playing in the dirt maybe more than I tell them to like, you know, run the bases. They got their base running down, but they'll stop and make little things in the dirt. It's, it's wonderful. But anyways, it's hot out, right? It's, it's warm. They're running around. And so during practice or during the games, we have to tell them, go get a drink of water. And they run, and they go get a drink of water. But for some reason, our son thinks he's a camel or something and that he does not need water. And so he'll go to his water bottle, and he'll take the tiniest little sip. I'm not even sure he's actually taking in water. He's just pretending to, to suck up the water in his water bottle. And we have to essentially force him <laughs> to drink this water because we know if he doesn't, he's going to get dehydrated. He's going to start feeling sick. Like He needs this water. So we have to like force him to drink water at the t-ball games, right? And sometimes we are in a space spiritually that we need to force ourselves to drink of the living water. We don't realize how badly we need the presence of God in our souls, and so we need to force ourselves. We need to be intentional about living in and experiencing the presence of God to be refreshed. Or we need to help others, like we have to help our son know, you know, you need to drink this water, and if you do not drink this water, you're not going back out on the field. We, you, you might need to come alongside someone else and say, no, you need to drink of this presence. You need to drink of the living water right now. I believe the worst thing you can do when you find yourself in a place of spiritual sorrow or spiritual dryness is to devoid yourself of the word and of the fellowship of believers. You are just making the problem worse if you go, 
I am just not really feeling the presence of God right now, and so I'm not going to try to find that presence. I'm not going to sit in the Word. I'm going to actually walk further away. You're actually making yourself more thirsty, more, more needy of the presence of God. Now, I think it's important to note here the author is speaking from an Old Testament perspective where, where the presence of God was in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and, and whether this was David or this was not David, they are physically separated from the presence of God in Jerusalem. And so he's longing for that pr- to be in that presence physically. He recalls in verse 4 a past time where with joy he led a procession to the presence of of God. He is using this past experience to refresh his soul in the present. Nowadays, God's presence is living inside of us as believers. The, God's presence is in us. And so it goes with us. It is everywhere. However, we too can use past experience to refresh our soul for the present. It can be used as a catalyst for our spiritual refreshment right now. I've done this myself. A a number of years ago, I found myself in just a a, a season of spiritual dryness. I was really lacking to feel the presence of God. And one of the things I did was I looked back to the past. And I looked back to my time in college at Geneseo. When I was involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, uh, heavily involved with that. And that was a great season of spiritual joy for me. I I felt the presence of God deeply. It was one of the most joyful times of my life. And so in this moment of sorrow that I was lacking the presence of God in my life, I reflected back on times where I really felt the presence of God. And what it did was it, it refreshed my soul for now. And so I looked back and I recalled and with joy, it brought back and I said, I want that joy again. And so I'm going, to, I'm going to refresh my soul with the presence of God now. That longing to go back to that place helped me to thirst now. As we will see and we will talk about in just a few minutes, each of the, stanza, of the stanzas of the psalm end with the same refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The author looks inward and asks himself why his soul is downcast. The rhetorical question that he asks is answered with hope in God. Look to God. Look to the salvation that the Lord provides. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Let's continue in verse 6 of Psalm 42. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We come to another picture of the author's struggle with his sorrow. This time, it's not a picture of a peaceful stream. It is a picture of rushing water, turbulent waters. This is not water that you can sit and drink from. This is waterfalls, breakers, waves, crashing, enveloping, surging, dismantling water that the author is using to paint this picture of how he is feeling. Have you been there? Have you been in a season where it feels like the crashing waves just will not subside? Even more, in these moments, it can feel as if God is not there to rescue you. Instead, the author actually attributes the waves to God. They're they're God's waves crashing over him, he says. Then the author asks the question that, for many people, stuns them. The unthinkable question to ask, God, why have you forgotten me? For some, this is one of the worst questions you can ask. God, why have you forgotten me? Because don't you know God doesn't forget you? But God, why have you forgotten me? In some ways, it denotes a lack of faith. But does the author admit that? I don't think so. In the previous verse, he says this, The Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? No. So wait a minute. Is God with him or is God not with him? Is God's presence with him all day? Is his song with him or is God distant and doesn't care? Which is it? Well, I think the answer is more complicated than yes or no here. God is with him. The author knows that to be true. He says, his song is with me. Yet, it feels like God is not there to the author. I think if you wanted a sort of explanation for maybe what spiritual sorrow really feels like, I think it's that. Knowing God is with you, but it feels like he's not. Knowing God's presence is there, but it doesn't feel like he's there at all. It feels like God is bombarding you, overwhelming you with life's struggles. Note how the author addresses God when he questions him. He says, I say to God, my rock, despite this feeling of abandonment, Despite this feeling of a lack of presence of God, God is still the rock, according to the author. God is still his rock. He still believes that God is the sure foundation he needs. And so how do we respond to spiritual sorrow? We stand firm on the rock of salvation. We stand firm on the rock of salvation. Which reminds me of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus uh, telling the story of the wise and the foolish builders. I remember as a kid singing the songs about the, the, you know, the wise and the foolish builders, that that wonderful Sunday school song. Uh, I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. Uh, I'm sorry, or you're welcome, whichever one you want to feel in that moment, right? So the foolish 
the foolish person builds their house on sand, and the wise one builds it on rocks. And what happens? The storms of life come, crash all over the house, and the one on the sand, because it doesn't really have a great foundation, the sand is shifty, and it doesn't hold up well to weathering, falls apart. The house is destroyed, yet the wise one, whose foundation was built on security, it stands. In spite of all that's thrown at it, the house stands. It does not tumble. Our lives get a lot thrown at it. And sometimes those things can push us into a season of spiritual sorrow. But even in the middle of that, in the middle of the storms, in the middle of the breakers and waves, we can stand firm on the foundation of Christ, His salvation, and we will not be moved. We are strengthened by Christ's strength. We overcome by His amazing grace. We overcome, we respond to spiritual sorrow by standing firm on the rock of salvation, knowing who our rock is, knowing who our foundation is. And even when it doesn't feel like the rock is really all that strong, the rock is strong. It will not be moved. We have that promise in his word. Let's continue into Psalm 43 now, the third stanza of this poem or psalm. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There's a bit of a tonal shift in this third stanza. Yes, the the, the author is still asking God why he has rejected him. But, but overall, I think this, there's a shift here going on in this stanza. It begins with a prayer to God to vindicate him, that this internal spiritual sorrow is coming from a place of outward force. An external force is, is the cause of this for the author. And so he turns to God now not to question but to ask for relief. This is why oftentimes psalms of lament are called also psalms of petition or psalms of prayer because they often are accompanied with a, a pouring our heart out to God, but then also asking God to help. And so this is what the author is doing. Then in verse 3, the author continues asking for God to send out his light and his truth so that he can be led by it, led back to his presence. Our spiritual sorrows often met with darkness. Spiritual darkness. A darkness of the soul that is seemingly void of God's light. We can feel we're in a pit, in a hole, yet we have a guiding 
light, a light that guides us back to the foundation. How do we respond to spiritual sorrow? We move forward in the light and truth of God. We move forward in the light and truth of God. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. What I am saying here is not a call to suck it up and move on. That is not what I am saying. This is not a call to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get moving and just get over it. That is not what I am saying. Do not mishear me on this. This is not what is being said here. God does not leave us. God does not abandon us. His light is there. And we look for the light and we move towards it. We move towards God in these moments. We move forward in the hope and love and truth of God, of who God is, what he has done through his son, and what he has promised to do in the future. This is what it means to move forward. Moving towards hope. Moving towards the cross. Moving towards Christ. Saying, I'm stuck in this pit. But I see God's love. I see God's hope. And I want to I'm going to move towards that hope. And I might have to carry the spiritual sorrow with me for a little bit, but I'm going to move, and I'm going to move towards Christ. We respond to our spiritual sorrow by moving intentionally towards the gospel. Now, I want to go back to the refrain, because it occurs three times, identical refrain, three times. And and Bible Study 101 will tell you, if you see a repeated word or phrase, make note of it, because it's probably pretty significant. But a stanza like this, two lines, is extremely significant if it's happening three times in a row. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Three times the author repeats this phrase. He is speaking to himself. He's not asking God. He's saying, soul, why are you this way? He is speaking to his own soul. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? But he's not waiting for his soul to answer. He's going to answer back to his soul. He tells his soul to hope in God, hope in his salvation, hope in the one who is praiseworthy. He is preaching the gospel to himself. He is preaching the gospel to his own soul. Now, I am not the first person to use that phrase. I will probably not be the last person to use that phrase, but it's a really good phrase of preaching the gospel to your soul. Regardless of whether we are in a state of spiritual sorrow or in spiritual joy, we must continually preach the love of God through the good news of Jesus Christ to ourselves every single day. As the band comes forward, I want to read a a quote. A quote from a famous 20th century preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He has a book called, uh, from 1965, it's a book called Spiritual Depression. 
And he puts it this way, talking about preaching to your soul. He says this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. We must preach the gospel to the world, yes. But we also must preach the gospel to ourselves. And listen, when we do this, when we preach the gospel to our own soul, it enables the other three ways we respond to this kind of sorrow. See, when we find ourselves in the middle of spiritual dryness and and thirsty for God, we refresh our souls with the living water by preaching Christ to ourselves. If we want the presence of God, we preach the presence of God to ourselves. When we find ourselves in the storm and our spiritual vitality is waning, we preach the gospel to our souls and we remind ourselves where we stand and where we build our life on the rock, the solid rock of Christ. When we find ourselves in a spiritual darkness, we speak to our souls the truth of the one who came to save our souls, the light of the world, and we move towards that light. The gospel is the key to how we respond to spiritual sorrow. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ is the center point to all we do, including how we respond to sadness, how we respond to darkness in our lives spiritually. The gospel is the key. Now, I do not know where you are at this point. You might be in this moment right now. You know God is with you, but man, it just doesn't feel like it. I've been there. I know how that feels. I want to encourage you, don't stop looking to Jesus. Preach the gospel to your soul this morning. Refresh, stand firm, move towards him. Some of you are in spiritual joy. Life could not be better. You're feeling the presence of God everywhere. Maybe this word needs to be spoken by you to someone else. Maybe there's someone in your life that you can encourage, that you can take alongside to the stream. And like we have to do with our son and make him drink his own water bottle when he's panting and out of breath. Maybe you need to help someone drink deeply of the presence of God. And you need to preach the gospel. Encourage them. When you find yourself in the spiritual rut, in the spiritual darkness, in spiritual sorrow, remember, refresh your soul with the presence of God. Stand firm on the rock of salvation 
and move forward in the light of God's love and his truth. And most importantly, preach the gospel to your soul. And this morning, we're going to sing one more song. We're going to be singing to God of how we need him. We need him every day. Whether, whether we are doing great or whether we are in a pit. And this morning, we're going to sing that song, but I'm going to be down here as well this morning, and I would love to, to pray with you. If you need some prayer, if you need some encouragement, if you need someone to preach the gospel to your soul this morning, I would love to do so down here or afterwards as well. But would you stand as we sing?